You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word, and now we pray for this feast on your word, that you would bless our souls, and that by your word you would let your word not return void as you have promised it would not. We pray for these things. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see all you this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been through two weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you've found that. If you haven't, uh, if you weren't following along with Skylar, you can just find the middle of the Bible. Uh, that'll be the book of, the, of Psalms and then flip over two books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And we're in the first half of chapter three this evening. Well, in 1922, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a short story called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. You likely know the story. Benjamin is born the size of a newborn, but he comes out looking like a 70-year-old man. And as he begins to get older, as he ages, his family notices that he begins to actually look physically younger. At age 50, 50 years on this earth, he now looks like a 20-year-old. He eventually, later on into his life, becomes a moody teenager, and then he goes to kindergarten, and then his memories begin to fade, and then the story ends in darkness. Benjamin Button is always out of place. He's always just missing all of the relationships in his life. There's like this four to five year sweet spot where he gets married to someone who is close to his age, but then they begin aging in opposite directions. And why is this story so jarring? Like, after all, Benjamin Button's life ends like nearly every other human life. He needs, ultimately, someone to take care of him, to change his diapers even, like many of us will in our old age. 
He begins to lose his memory and then he dies, just like you likely will. Well, it's jarring for one because if you've seen the movie, it's so long that by the time you've finished, you have now entered into a new stage of life. Uh, But it's also mostly jarring because the timing is just off. Everything is just, just missing out. Like he should have played football with like a 20-year-old mind and a 20-year-old body, and instead he's playing with a 50-year-old mind and a 20-year-old body. He should have aged alongside his football teammates and with his wife. The timing was never right. Well, this evening, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to reflect on time. In chapter 1, he reflected on the vaporness of Uh, the time of our lives. We live for about 70 or 80 years, most of us, and then we die, and then we're forgotten. A hundred years from now, no one will remember our names. All of life is hevel, is vapor. Last week in chapters 1 and 2, he went even further to say that it's not just our lives that are hevel, that are vapor, but everything in them as well. Anything and everything in this life that we can use to pursue happiness, use to pursue meaning, is ultimately just going to slip through our fingers like air. We also saw last week, though, that the hinge of this book will turn to joy. Understanding this world and understanding everything in it to be the vapor that it is, the preacher can then just sit back and enjoy the things that he does have to enjoy life, even as vapor as it is. So now he's going to move from prose back into poetry, and then he's just going to keep mining, going deeper and deeper, exploring these themes even more deeply as he reflects upon time and as he reflects on the God of time. So we'll think through our text tonight and try to answer, uh, or try to think through uh, two headings here, just knowing the time and then redeeming the time. Knowing the time. Before beginning the couplet part of the bulk of this poem, the preacher gives a summary statement in verse 1. He says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, many have said this under heaven phrase is just synonymous uh, with the phrase that we've already seen over and over again in the first two chapters of under the sun. But I don't think that's quite right. In all of the times the preacher says under the sun, uh, it's always about meaninglessness. It's always about vapor. It's about here, gone, and forgotten. But the few times that he uses under heaven in this book, it's a more positive thing, a more of an, an, an acknowledging of the God who is over the sun. So while God is not explicitly mentioned in this poem, though he will be nine times in the seven verses after it, God's being in heaven actually, I think, is the thing that is driving this reflection. This poem is a very popular New Year's sermon. Like, okay, everybody, uh, there's a time for everything. We're all thinking about time as another calendar year uh, unfolds. So as this new year begins, there's a time for planting. There's a time for harvesting. There's a time for weeping and laughing and a time to speak and to be silent. So now in this new year, it's up to you perhaps with new resolutions, uh, to have more discernment and for you to kind of figure out when the right time is for you to do these things. So be observant. Know the world around you. Understand the seasons. Understand the people that uh, live in this world. And when it's time to be silent, well then, for goodness sake, don't speak, right? So pick your battles wisely, I think is how we might be able to sum up how this poem is often used and interpreted. But tell me, Who is the focus of this kind of preaching, this kind of interpretation and application? 
Well, it's you, right? Just pick your battles wisely, everyone. But based on the under heaven phrase and the preacher's later thoughts about God, the very content of the poem, I think that the focus and the application of this poem is not on you. The focus and application of this is certainly not pick your battles wisely and just have a little bit more discernment as you leave this building. While human response is in play here, the emphasis seems to be that we are actually powerless to change anything. The poem begins with, a, uh, with couplet after couplet of opposites. Verse 2, it begins with kind of a heading, a heading for the rest of the poem, that there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now, many have tried throughout the centuries, but I don't think that there is a ton of rhyme or reason or like logical flow for why the next verse comes after the following one or the one before it. It seems that the preacher here is saying, here is life, here is death, and then here is everything that can happen between the poles of your life and death. The point of this poem is not that we would dissect and analyze each couplet. Like, what does it mean to gather or cast away stones? Likely like an agricultural thing of preparing a field for harvest or if you want to ruin your enemy's field for their harvest. But the poem, I think, is not prescriptive here. Like, okay, it's up to you. Just try to figure out when the time to tear something and when the time is to sew it back together or when the time is to speak or keep silent. Rather, it's merely descriptive, not prescriptive, descriptive though, of our inability to really affect or change anything. Time, as we've seen, like the sun just goes around and 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 around, over and over. You can't do anything to stop the sun from rising or setting. We can do nothing to keep time from moving on without us. This poem is rhythmic. It's like breathing in and breathing out. It's like hevel in and hevel out. There's time here, there is time gone. There is time forgotten, and then just it moves on. Like we are powerless to stop it or to control it. Why were you born on your birthday? Were you involved in that decision at all? In both your conception or in your delivery? None. You had no agency in that act. We'll find out in our next section that God is sovereign and he appointed you to be born at the moment that you were born in. Why do we plant our crops in the springtime and then harvest them in the fall? Well, because God is sovereign over the seasons over the weather, and over how we think about agriculture underneath his sovereign seasons. Like, I'm really, really looking forward to in a few months from now, when like the highs are in the 50s or the 60s. It's going to be wonderful. But there is nothing that we can do to hasten the day, right? Like, we just have to sit around and sweat for a few more months and just wait it out. Like, it's coming. We know that it's coming, but we can't do anything to make it come more quickly. Why do we go out to war? Well, because unless you're the king, your government or the world event which caused the war that had nothing to do with you, it sends you out to war. And God, as we know from the rest of the Bible, is sovereign over the, fa- the affairs of kings and over the nations. Why do we weep? Why do we mourn during times of loss in our life? Well, because we are powerless to prevent what God ordains in the world which then prepares us for a couple of chapters from now for the reality of Ecclesiastes 5.2, that God is in heaven 
We are under heaven and we are under earth, but God is reigning and ruling from heaven over the sun. This shouldn't be surprising, but we need to be reminded of it daily, don't we? That you are actually not God. That we are in hourly need of reminder of his bigness and my smallness, of his eternality and my hevelnessness. Hevelness, that's it. Vaporness, vapidity. That's a good one. Here and gone, and yet God does not change. A lot of us like the idea of a sovereign God in the good times, don't we? I go, praise God that I got that scholarship this semester, or God is so good for providing this promotion, or that raise, or this baby in our lives. Like, can you believe it? Like how seemingly and randomly I ran into this person who introduced me to this person who introduced me to that person, and then I got this job interview, and now I'm sitting here in my dream job. Like, it's such a God thing, right? Do we use this phrase? Like, man, that was such a God thing. I'm not saying that you should stop using that because it's very true, but we should use that phrase, it was such a God thing of all things in life. We know from the entirety of the Bible that God is sovereign and meticulously involved in what's going on on earth. Proverbs 16 tells us that the lot, or like the dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is crazy to think about, but that God actually cares about and is involved with every roll of the dice at Sandia Casino crazy. Or how Jesus explains that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. Matthew 10. So we know that God is sovereign over the good things, but we must also acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things, big and small, incredible and tragic. When we don't get the scholarship, or we lose the job, or the miscarriage happens, or the war, or the terrorist attack happens, we must just as quickly respond, it was such a God thing. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I'm certainly not suggesting that God is the author of sin or something evil like that, but one, that this world is under a curse and creation groans in birth pains, waiting for its redemption, and that also humans sin, and we humans are wicked against one another. Much more on that in the weeks to come in Ecclesiastes. And yet what many intended for evil, God can nevertheless use for good, sovereignly and outside of time. We must acknowledge, like Job, that we don't even understand the things that we can see. Job goes through like the wonders and mysteries of just the animal kingdom, right? Like I can look at a goat and not understand what in the world is going on with that thing. Like the mystery is too much for my mind to even comprehend much less the galaxies above or the workings of just the seven billion people who are alive right now. Like, I can't understand any of that because I can't see it. God is in heaven and we are not. So what are the times that we live in? What are these times? Well, it is God's times. It is God's seasons. We live in it. As one commentator says, to put simply, God does everything at just the right time. So some of you, like many throughout the ages, might be thinking, well, if God is sovereign over all things, this, this kind of makes it feel like he is cold and unfeeling. And this must make us all like robots and that we have no choice in anything that we do. 
If there is a time for everything under heaven and I am powerless to stop anything, I might as well just go find my best Snuggie and uh, get up, just lay down on the couch and just have a Netflix binge session until I die because nothing matters. This is not true and this is certainly not the preacher's conclusion. This brings us to his next reflection. Now that we have a better understanding of knowing the time, he and we can actually move forward in redeeming the time. Let's read the second half again together. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God's sovereignty does not produce, or it should not produce, a fatalistic, snuggy holding Netflix binge session. It should do the exact opposite. That we should be joyful and do good as long as we live. Just like last week, this kind of deep reflection of the world doesn't produce a pessimistic tone from the preacher. The overarching tone and theme of Ecclesiastes is joy. So after realizing that God gives us what seems to be perhaps vapor and meaningless daily work, the preacher says, in spite of the daily monotony, God has placed eternity into our hearts. Meaning that we know that there must be more than what we see and experience every day. We know as humans, deep down, as much as we would like to repress and suppress it, that we are more than just matter, more than just molecules and DNA, and our only purpose here on earth is to just transmit more DNA to the next generation. We know. And so it becomes an unhappy business when we humans seek to find gain or surplus in the toil of our vapor lives. Many have used the illustration of standing behind a tapestry. All you see from the backside of the tapestry is a bunch of random threads looping and crossing here and there with no rhyme or reason. And after just standing at it for a little while, we can just turn away frustrated, not understanding what in the world this thing is. It's just a waste of time. If you could only walk around to the other side and see the order, to see the beauty, your frustration would then turn to wonder. The problem is, in this life, we are, we are on the backside of the tapestry. We are under the sun, and we're not able to see the front side, the wisdom of God outside of time and throughout eternity. We just can't see it. So we know that eternity is here, but yet our experience and what we see and experience today seems to not indicate that God actually is there. We as Christians, we know that there is a coming time where God will redeem all things and there will no longer be a time for mourning, a time for losing or hating or killing. One day we'll see the other side and there will be no more confusion, but it's hard. It's difficult. 
And yet the more we anchor ourselves to the goodness and promises of God in the present time of waiting, we can, like David in Psalm 31, say, I trust in you, Lord. My times are in your hands. Even though having eternity in our hearts without being able to grasp it in this life may feel like God has like put a treasure chest in front of us, a locked one, and he hasn't given us the key. It feels like that left on our own. The preacher determines that the best thing for us on this side of eternity, on the back side of the tapestry, and under the sun then, is verse 12. Understanding that it feels like he can't understand what eternity is for, he then says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. I also, or also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So what he's prescribing is enjoyment in the gifts of this earth. He's telling us that we should seek to enjoy good steak and good wine, like board games with your friends and your family. Enjoy deep friendship, romantic love, the mountains and sunsets. All of these things are good gifts, but they are very poor gods. All of them are gifts for our enjoyment that God gives us that we might see them, lift our eyes from them, and look beyond them to the giver who has given them to us. And even though you see C.S. Lewis's well-known quote like weekly on Facebook or on the email forwards from your aunt, uh, he may best sum up the longings of every human being where he writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Just like last week, we enjoy the gifts because we enjoy and trust the giver. The preacher's conclusion is much like Mr. Keating's from Dead Poet Society of Mr. Keating teaches his students to squeeze every amount of enjoyment and marrow out of life and live every day like it's your last. But while the preacher looks like he's offering something similar here, seize the day, go eat and drink and just enjoy life. Enjoy, squeeze every bit of marrow out of life. You better not waste what you have in uh, in front of you. His reasoning is a bit different. Mr. Keating gives this advice because we're all going to be dead soon, just like these people in the black and white photos that we're looking at. We're going to be dead just like them. So you better not waste the one life that you have. And while that's true, this isn't just the preacher's advice, not just because we're going to be dead soon, but enjoy life and enjoy the gifts of God because God is sovereign and he has put you in the places and the seasons in your life for a reason. Work hard. Do good. Joyfully trust that God has you there for a reason. Bloom where you're planted. The problem is our tendency is rather than living today with joy because the Lord of time has put us in it, it's our tendency to distrust the time and the season that we're in wish that we were in a different or a better time 
or season than we're in. When I was an early high school student, I had a leader in our youth group named Bo, and uh, we'd hang out pretty regularly, and at some point, I think at a breakfast table at Cracker Barrel, maybe like my freshman or sophomore year of high school, before school started, uh, I, I expressed a growing discontentment of life in high school that I still had to live in my parents' house. Like, life would be so much better, Bo, if I could just graduate and move away and go to college. And he interrupted me and he said, once upon a time, there was a little boy and he was out for a walk in the woods and he found a, a, a little red box with a, a string coming out of it. And he said, what's this? And he picked up the box and he pulled the string and he could tell that something happened, but he didn't know what. So he, he walked back to his house and he walked down the hall and walked past a mirror and was startled uh, because now his seven-year-old body looked to be 14. And he was like, I knew something had happened. Well, this is great. Now my parents don't treat me like a little kid and I can be a 14-year-old. Like eighth grade is so much better than first or second grade. So he began living his life as a 14-year-old, but then grew quickly frustrated that he couldn't drive. And so he found this box a day or two later and he pulled it again and now he was an 18-year-old. He felt the stubble growing on his face. But life would be so much better after just a couple of days of living life as an 18-year-old because if I could just leave my parents' house, if I didn't have to deal with this curfew anymore. So he pulled the string again, and hello, what's, what does he find? He finds that life in the dorm room. He's now in college, and life is very interesting now. He's met lots of new friends from all over the world who come from different walks of life and philosophy. He's going to interesting classes, uh, and he's having a great week of fun. But then, man, these papers are really difficult. Staying up late at night, and having a little bit of money sure would be nice. So he pulls the box out of his pocket and he pulls the string. And now he's, he's in his mid-twenties and he's making good money as a single guy. He's got a sweet car and a nice apartment. He's got loads of time to just play video games now that he doesn't have to worry about papers. But life would be a lot better if I just had a wife and a couple of kids or something. So he pulls the string and now he's married. and He's got a couple of kids under the age of four. And it's wonderful for a day because then... <laughs> He's got to wake up in the middle of the night. He's got to change diapers. Like, what is this about? So he's like, if I could just, if these kids just could be teenagers and I could have like adult conversations with them, surely life would be better then. So he pulls the string again. Now he's got teenagers. And now he still can't sleep, not because he's changing diapers, because his teenagers are out of the house and he's worried about them. Life would be so much better if I, they, were, they, they were just a bit more mature. They're still... They still don't understand the world. They still don't understand their own lives. I'm just scared for them. If they could just be mature, then surely life would be better. So he pulls the string again. And now they're married on their own. And yet life is difficult. His daughter has had complications with pregnancies. Life is difficult. They're, they're, his, his other son is having problems with parenting. He has now a, a grandparent. He's got loads of worries. If, if my kids were just a little bit older and they had teenage kids of their own, there was a bit more stability in my grandkids' life. Life would be so much better. So he pulls the string again and now he's 80. And perhaps like 150 or 200 days after he found the box as a seven-year-old in the woods, now he's finding himself at the end of his life. His wife has died. His kids are putting him in a nursing home. And he thinks back on that day in the woods and he wishes that he was seven again. What a glorious and adventurous life I had then. And yet, 
I wished away my life. I wish I had never found the box. And Bo looked across the table at me at Cracker Barrel and he said, don't wish your life away. Enjoy the time of getting to spend life in your parents' house at a, as like a 15-year-old. Enjoy the time of changing diapers and like the endless laundry. College students, like enjoy the time of writing papers and working hard, applying your mind for preparation for God to send you out into this world. Even while it might take a soul which is more anchored to Christ, be thankful for the things that you would have never asked for. Thank God that he can teach you and shape you through times of loss, times of difficult singleness that I know many of you are struggling through, difficult times of cancer. No one would ever pray for that. And yet as John Piper's book title suggests to us, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your miscarriage. Thank God that he can use whatever circumstances you may be in to lift your hope from the heaviness of this world and to fix your hope on him. Why? Verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. The reason that we can joyfully live out our days with meaning and hope under the sun is because whatever God does endures forever. The kingdom that he is building will not fail or disappear like vapor. And why does God appoint all things for a time and a season? Why do things come and go? So that people will fear him. And this is not a bad thing. Not a cowering in terror in front of him. But recognizing that he is God and that we are not. Being reminded because we are so forgetful and tempted to think that we are God and he is not. This is the height of human pride and praise God that he uses both the good and the bad to remind us of this reality. Unless we're ever tempted to think that a sovereign God is cold and unfeeling, lest we're tempted to think that it would make him uncaring to be sovereign over life and death, over job promotions and job losses, over times of plenty and times of loss and famine and destruction, he shows us that his rule over creation does not make him less knowable and personable, but more. When the second person of the triune sovereign God becomes flesh. When as Paul calls it in Galatians 4, at the fullness of time. When the seasons had found their culmination. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem those who were under the law. The author of creation, the eternal one who is outside of time, throws himself into the heaviness, into the vapor, into the fleetingness of time and humanity. And alongside us, the God-man enters into and shares in our suffering and the brokenness and the evil of this world. And living in perfect worship and joy in the Father, not seeking surplus in the things of this earth, but enjoying them as the heavenly gifts that they are, he awaited his hour, 
As we saw over and over and over again in John's gospel, his hour was not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then his hour had come. And it's as if the treasure box that is locked and that we cannot quite understand, now we're given the key. And the box is opened. We humans who have eternity written on our hearts, knowing that there must be something more, but on our own are unable to find the answer, find our answers, our yeses and amens in Christ, who has lived and died for us, that he might give us his life, which extends beyond the vapor. And it's with this knowledge of a sovereign and great God who is in heaven, who is over the sun, but who is also a compassionate and kind and wise and loving father that I can with joy and even with some sometimes painful tears stand here in a building like this and sing alongside with all of you what though the way be lonely and dark the shadows fall I know where'er it leadeth my father planned it all so I'll sing through shade and sunshine and trust whatever befalls. I sing, I can't be silent. Why? Because my father planned all of it. Life and death. Shade and sunshine. I can walk out of here with meaning and purpose and joy. Not just discernment to understand the seasons and pick and choose my battles, but with meaning and purpose and joy because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He isn't about making like robots more blindly worship him. He isn't about this at all. He's about making orphans into his sons and daughters. He is about making dead people alive. He's about making the vapor into the fixed, into the eternal. So as Christians, as one of my seminary professors says, it is not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday we were dead. There is real joy to be had and experienced in this life because now we, are, we no longer have death, we no longer have eternity to dread. But rather, death and eternity is something to not... Uh, welcome and try to hasten more quickly, but to actually be welcomed because it is the door to life eternal. For those who love him, even on the underside of this tapestry, even where there is confusion, where there are questions and there are doubts, he is still working all things together for good for those who love him, for their holiness, for their more and more fixed faith in his promises and his goodness and for their ultimate joy in him, not just the things that he can give us. And yet, as we've been thinking through the entirety of this service, as we've confessed together and thought through and sung together and prayed together, even having heard this and reflected on all of this in Ecclesiastes 3, it will be our temptation and our tendency to walk right out of this building and put our faith more and more, our hope more and more in the things that God gives. So praise God that he sends things in our lives, both good and bad, to raise our eyes to him, to fix our hope in him. 
The underside of the tapestry is still really, really difficult to understand, though. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks in the next couple of chapters in this book together. Read ahead. Keep reading. And if you've stayed with us in the Read Scripture reading plan that we've been going throughout, uh, through, through the whole year, if you've gotten behind, this would be a great time to jump back in this week. We started the New Testament on Friday in Matthew 1. You can read the entire New Testament with us in about four months, which will take you about 12 minutes each day. Uh, you can find that in the weekly email. I have a link to that reading plan. I didn't invite you to read Ecclesiastes with us a few more times and then just read the Bible with us. We need God's Word to lift our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray that he would. Our Father, we are thankful for everything that you have given us, for wine and steak, for spouses, for sunsets. But we are also thankful for the things in our lives that we don't understand because we know that through all times and all seasons in our life, trials, tribulations, difficulties, they, are come, they have come to increase our perseverance and our hope in you. We pray that you would. We pray that by your spirit you might give us endurance, that you might cause us to persevere into the end. You might increase our faith so that when the difficulties of life come, we can sing through shade and sunshine, and trust that you have planned at all as a good and wise Father, that these things would not cause us to doubt your goodness, to doubt your care, to doubt your love and your wisdom for your children. Father, help us to understand your word. Cause us to love you more this week through the, through the power of the Spirit through the reading and reflecting on your word by the encouragement of your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.